Once again, as I mentioned earlier, if you're visiting with us, my name is Mike Kezarowski. I serve as the lead pastor here. Um, I, I find myself in the last several uh, months just trying to chase down new people uh, the best that I can. Uh, I want to meet you. And uh, it would help, though, if, uh, you, you, if we haven't had the chance to connect yet, to meet you after service. Um, so please come up and say hello. Um, please know that it's our pattern every week, if you're new to FAC, to open up God's Word together and ask God to speak to us through his word. And uh, so we do that here now in Acts chapter uh, 19. Once again, I will read verses 1 through 10. And then we will ask the Lord for help uh, in our understanding this morning, starting in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Would you pray with me? And Father, you know that our hearts are a dark and hollow place, and our minds are regularly set against you and tainted in thought due to our own unrighteousness. So, Lord, we ask you this morning that your Holy Spirit, by his power, would renew our minds and that our hearts would be transformed by the power of your proclaimed word and that we would be molded into the likeness of your Son, Jesus. Father, would you hear our cries to you and come to our aid in these moments? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So a little over a month ago, we celebrated uh, two birthdays in my house. Uh, my, my two daughters, they're six years apart from each other, but they share the same birthday, um, Ella and Allison. We call them our, our twins. And um, we celebrated by going to a trampoline park uh, in town for a few hours. And if you've never been to a trampoline park before, there's all sorts of fun trampolines and obstacles uh, that you can, could utilize. And all of them require uh, varying levels and ranges of uh, skill. Uh, now, there was one in particular that didn't require a great degree of talent or coordination or body control. Uh, so it was perfect for a guy like me. Um, it was this pat platform. It was, it was angled upward and uh, it was sort of suspended in the air uh, by a bar right in the middle of the platform underneath it. And uh, this bar served as a fulcrum, a fulcrum point. 
And, and what would happen as you walk up this platform, you would interact it with it by walking upward. But as soon as you uh, passed that fulcrum point in the middle of the platform, uh, the, the entire platform would shift and just go downward. And how you interacted with the platform changed. And, and it was really quite exhilarating, um, <laughs> exciting for me, uh, which only shows you that I probably don't get out enough. Um, in our text this morning, uh, we come across a plane, a, p- a platform. We come across two different points on a platform, two different baptisms that could be uh, figuratively placed on opposite ends of a platform. And this figurative platform rests on a fulcrum. And depending on where one stands on this figurative platform, in relation to this fulcrum, dictates not only how one understands God, but how one actually interacts with God. Or perhaps more accurately, how God interacts with you. Uh, and what's documented for us here in Acts is, is this movement of this anonymous group of men that Paul uh, works with from one side of the fulcrum to the other. In verse 1, we're introduced to them merely as disciples. Um, now, let's not get ahead of ourselves because the term disciple can, mean much, can be much more broad than we might think. Uh, the term disciple literally means just to be a follower a pupil, a student, right? It's anyone who comes under the teaching or influence of another person. That, that could be uh, called a disciple. Uh, the great philosophers of antiquity had disciples. The Jewish rabbis at the time had disciples. And we could even say today uh, that political leaders or athletes have disciples. And so in this verse, we are told merely that these men are disciples, but we are not told who they are disciples of. We don't know who they are students of. We don't know who who they are following. And and there's two kind of prevailing theories, and it might be some kind of mixture or combination of both, in that they are either disciples of John the Baptist, because of what they say later, or they claim to be disciples of Jesus, but they are disciples by name only. Because it's clear with what happens in the text that they are not true believers at this point, and we'll we'll get to that. But this wouldn't necessarily stop them from claiming to be true believers' disciples. But there's a very good chance that these disciples that Paul comes across are what we would call nominal Christians, the, the, the ones that are just kind of religious They might have some kind of knowledge of Jesus. They might have some kind of association with Jesus, but it is not a saving knowledge of Jesus. It's not a a saving association with him. They have yet to really put their trust in him for their salvation. And the same happens today. There are many that if you were to ask on a survey what their religious affiliation is, they they would say, yeah, they're, they're Christian, but they might not be. So something like that is what's happening here in the text is, Paul engages with these men. They've expressed some sort of belief. And Paul affirms that, that they've expressed belief. But then Paul asks a peculiar question. In verse 2, he asks the men, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, that's a little bit of an odd question. You don't just go around asking people that, do you? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
What is Paul doing here? He's doing what I would call a little bit of spiritual triage. Right in the medical field, what is triage? Triage is when hospitals sort out patients according to their need for medical uh, attention and to determine both uh, the level of care needed and the urgency of care needed. In medical triage, depending on how you answer certain questions, will determine the next steps for the medical providers and what they take. It might, it might change the course of action. And that is exactly what Paul is doing here with these men. In our own evangelism efforts, there are times when we come across people who say that they are a Christian. And after a few short minutes of conversation, it becomes very evident that they are not. Paul is doing the same thing here. He doesn't take them at their word. He, he's, he's inquiring of them to determine what needs to happen next, the direction that this conversation needs to go and how they respond to this question will determine the direction of the the conversation. He's putting them to the test, if you will, to find out if they are authentically, uh, have put their faith in Christ and how they respond to the question does bring clarity to Paul. Paul says, now tell me when you believed, you said that you've believed, when did you believe? Did 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 you receive the Holy Spirit? And they say, no, we, we, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And that right there is all Paul needed to hear. At this point, there's a red flag that goes in, into Paul's mind because he knows in these, these men, he knows in his mind that these men are not believers at this point. And this actually informs his next question. So he follows up by asking them, into what then were you baptized? You were baptized into something, into what then were you, were you baptized? Now, it's important for us to know that the word baptism simply means uh, to, to be immersed. It's a much broader term. Um, we have a very finite understanding of what baptism is. Uh, but please know that baptism means immersion. And what Paul is doing here is associating baptism um, with belief. He is associating baptism with belief. Not that, they, that you have to be baptized, to uh, believe, but there is a connection. There, there is a link. And so Paul tells them, you've been baptized. You've been immersed into something. You've expressed some sort of belief. And Paul is essentially asking them, what do you believe in? What do you believe in? And into what you were baptized? And that question alone implies that there is a baptism, an immersion into the Holy Spirit. That you can be baptized into the Holy Spirit. If you weren't baptized into the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying, what were you baptized into? And they responded, well, we were baptized into John's baptism. Um, This John, of course, being John the Baptist. And so here presented before us are two different baptisms, right? And Paul, once again, is associating baptism in this instance with belief, and it's critical for these so-called disciples to understand the difference between the two baptisms because in their mind, the difference between their understanding of the two is the difference between belief and unbelief. And so Paul uses the opportunity to teach them a little lesson about the differences between the two. He explains in verse four that John baptized with, a, with the baptism, with the immersion of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after John. And so what did John's baptism represent? 
when people were baptized by John's baptism under his teaching, what did it represent? John's baptism was a baptism of, of, of recognition, specifically recognition in one's own sin. And it was also a baptism of anticipation, looking ahead, looking ahead, being excited about what's to come. Every year at Christmas time, my wife and I have the same debate that we have had since right when we first met each other about whether or not at Christmas time you should put the presents under the tree ahead of time or wait till the night before Christmas and then they're all there Christmas morning. Uh, you feel free to weigh in after we're done so I can settle this debate once and for all. Um, but I'm going to tip my hand. I'm going to tell you what I think. Um, I enjoy putting the presents under the tree ahead of time uh, in the month leading up, not before Thanksgiving because people that put up their tree before Thanksgiving um, are just sinners. Um, (laughs) Weekend of Thanksgiving, the tree goes up and then as soon as you start getting presents and you can wrap them, you put them under the tree. And the reason I enjoy this so much is because it builds on the anticipation. And it builds on the excitement and you see all the wonderful packages and the gifts and the sparkling, glimmering wrapping paper and the the beautiful bows. And there is just like this rich anticipation of the day that I will receive that gift and I will partake in it. This is the experience of one who was baptized into John's baptism. Being baptized by John under his teaching demonstrated a recognition of one's sin, having a clear desire to be cleansed from that sin and a great anticipation of the day that the Messiah, the Savior will come, the one who will cleanse my sin once and for all. It was a belief of anticipation. And so don't get me wrong, this was a good thing. This was a good thing. This is something that they should have done. But those who were only baptized into John's baptism at this time were just waiting and waiting and waiting. They were stuck, if you will, in a holding pattern because Christmas Day never came for them. And so what's the trigger point? How does one move on the platform from John's baptism where they're just waiting to the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, there is a fulcrum. There is a hinge by which Paul's entire teaching here rests on. And the hinge is not original to Paul. Paul is not the first person in the New Testament to talk about this pivot point. Believe it or not, the first person in the New Testament to mention this fulcrum between the two baptisms, between the two beliefs, was John the Baptist himself. In all four Gospels, John mentions the two different uh, baptisms and the fulcrum point between the two. Uh, And since Luke wrote the book of Acts, I think it would be helpful to turn our attention to Luke's account of this conversation with John the Baptist. I want you to take a look at uh, Luke chapter 3 verses 15 through 16. I do have the words up on the screen for you. As, this is what Luke writes. As the people were in expectation, 
And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, being John the Baptist, whether he might be the Christ or the Messiah, the Savior. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Two baptisms, one pivot point. He who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He is the one who will baptize you, immerse you into the Holy Spirit. John in this passage is saying, I'm doing this right now and it's a good thing, but there will be a day where my baptism is obsolete because it will be replaced by another man's work. And that man is Jesus. John the Baptist testified to this and Paul makes it clear back in Acts 19.4. Look at it again. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him that is Jesus. We must understand that Jesus is the fulcrum point of Paul's questions. That question that Paul asks into what were you baptized hangs in the balance of our understanding of Jesus. Jesus is the pinnacle of this situation with these disciples in Ephesus. And Jesus is the pinnacle of our own understanding of God and our own relation to God, even still today. Through Jesus' entire ministry, he promised that once he was glorified, he would provide a helper. He would send his spirit. Uh, John chapter 7, John writes, he's quoting Jesus. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's an analogy that Jesus uses to talk about the Holy Spirit. And if, and if you debate that or question that, John makes it very clear by offering comment on what Jesus said in the very next verse. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And that right there is the exact pivot point. John's baptism was replaced by the Holy Spirit's baptism once Jesus is glorified. Right? Jesus comes to the earth in the incarnation, lives a perfectly holy life, submits himself to death, rises from the grave, appears before hundreds of witnesses, ascends into heaven, and is now glorified at the right hand of the Father. And then and only then, once he is formally glorified, does he impart his spirit permanently to those who believe in him. Think of the beauty of this this concept, of this teaching, of this message throughout Scripture, that God in the flesh sent us God in the Spirit according to the will and plan of God our Father. Jesus is the one who makes the Holy Spirit available to us by the Father's plan and will. And this outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon humanity is the inauguration of a new age. It was the inauguration of the new covenant and every believer is given the Holy Spirit, is baptized, is literally and spiritually immersed into the Holy Spirit, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone. 
John's baptism was with water. It was a physical action uh, which, which only pointed those to the one who would cleanse them spiritually once and for all uh, of their sin. All right, the, the, the baptism into the spirit, though, is a spiritual immersion where the cleansing of sin actually takes place. It's, it's no longer an action of anticipation. It's no longer someday my sins will be taken care of once and for all. No, it has happened. It's no longer the action of anticipation. It's not that we're waiting around for the day that our sins will be wiped away because that day has passed. And we now have the spirit available to us to wipe away and cleanse our sins. But he only wipes away and cleans the sins of those who receive Jesus and believe in him and trust in him and him alone for their salvation. So once again, Jesus is the fulcrum of all redemptive history. And you'll notice that the fulcrum, because it is an actual objective event that happened in history, it it is a fixed point. It doesn't change. It's a fixed point in history. The fulcrum never changes. It's stationary. What does change, however, is our own position in relation to it, right? Jesus doesn't move. Jesus doesn't budge. We are the ones that are moved and transferred from one side of the fulcrum to the other. And it's not until you're brought to the other side of the fulcrum point of Christ does your relationship with God change. These men that Paul are dealing with here in Acts 19 are stuck on the other side of the fulcrum. They're they're stuck in an Old Testament mindset. It it might seem odd, um, but John the Baptist, although written about in the New Testament, is an Old Testament prophet. He's the last Old Testament prophet. He was the last one to say there's a Messiah coming. He's on his way. And when these men responded to Paul's first question by saying that they have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, it's not as if they weren't familiar with the concept of the Spirit because all of the Old Testament prophets, uh, John the Baptist included in that, taught about the Spirit. Jesus mentioned that, that the Scriptures talk about this Spirit that is coming. No, when they say that they have not even heard about the Holy Spirit, what they are saying in effect is that they didn't know that the Holy Spirit was now available to them. They they didn't know that John's prophecy of this coming Messiah, this coming Savior had been fulfilled. They didn't know that the Spirit had come and was accessible to them now. You see, these men have stalled under an Old Testament mindset, still waiting for the day of the Savior. You know, they're like singing Bono from U2. I've I've climbed highest mountains. I've run through the fields. I have run. I have crawled. I've scaled these city walls. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Perhaps that tune resonates with you this morning. You say, I've looked and I've searched and I've tried everything. I've tried religion. I've tried going to a bunch of different churches. I've, I've tried relationships with other people. I've, 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 you name it and I've tried it. There's nothing under the sun that I haven't tried. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. If that's the case, 
Let me encourage you this morning that your search can end today as it did for these men. These men were still anticipating a Savior, a Messiah, and so Paul clears it up and says, the Savior is here. You don't have to wait any longer. The Messiah is here, and it's Jesus, and Jesus offers his Spirit to you, and and, and they believe in Jesus. It's fascinating that once you look to uh, verse 5, Paul's talking about the baptism of the Spirit, but look at verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They come to a moment of belief here. They believe in Jesus. They testify that he is Lord and Savior. And we read that the Holy Spirit comes on them and that they actually receive the Holy Spirit. They are baptized. They are immersed into the Spirit as they recognize that Jesus is the Christ. And when the Holy Spirit comes on them in verse 6, they begin speaking in tongues and prophesying. This is a similar experience that happened to the apostles in Acts chapter 2 in the, in the upper room when the Spirit was officially given to them. And um, th- this is not to say that this is a normative experience for all believers. And, and that is not necessarily what the text is trying to communicate, that all believers will speak in tongues or prophesy upon receiving the Holy Spirit. What's emphasized in this text, it, it, what's important in this text, is that there was evidence that they had received the Spirit. And so let me be clear, not every believer will speak in tongues or prophesy upon receiving the Holy Spirit. They might, but this is not a normative experience. However, every believer, every believer will receive the Spirit and those who receive the Spirit will experience evidence that they did receive the Spirit. And the evidence for these men didn't actually stop at speaking in tongues and prophesying. These men were empowered for ministry work. That's what we read in verses 8 through 10, those final three verses. Paul takes them into a local synagogue, as was their habit in Ephesus. He, for three months, speaks boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Uh, Verse 9, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and then noticed this detail and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And so these disciples become ministry partners with Paul. They, They are partners in the gospel with Paul doing ministry work. Basically, once ministry opportunities in the synagogue dry up, once it's clear that the Jews in the synagogue have rejected the the message of Jesus, Paul and these disciples go to this place called Tyrannus Hall. It was most likely an educational establishment of the day that Paul and his disciples rented out and utilized during the off hours of the day. And we're told that they together were daily sharing the gospel, reasoning with people, and that this continued for two years. And as a result of their effort and their work and their ministry, all of the residents of the Roman province of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let that sink in for a moment. Everyone, everyone in that region, which is modern-day Turkey, heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not everybody turned to him, but everybody heard the message. And this is not to say that every single citizen crowded into the hall of Tyrannus because there were millions in Asia. No, no, what 
probably happened was that as Paul and these disciples reasoned in that hall daily, people had come to Ephesus for a variety of reasons. It was a very popular town. Um, they heard the message passing through and then they were so excited about it that they, they took it back to their hometowns and villages throughout Asia. The message was so compelling and the message was so personally transformational that they just had to tell friends and they had to tell neighbors and they had to tell loved ones and they had to tell uh, co-workers and they had to even tell strangers about this Jesus who has the power to give us a spirit that cleanses our sins, that reconciles us to God, that makes us more like Christ. Most beautiful, powerful, life-changing message of all time. And everybody in Asia at least heard about it. The the message spread like wildfire throughout all of Asia, but it all started when the Holy Spirit ignited the first sparks in these 12 men. As, As these men were immersed into the Holy Spirit, the whole province of Asia was immersed into the gospel message. What the last several verses of our passage communicates is that receiving the Holy Spirit is a clearly distinguishable experience. These men knew for a fact that they had not received the Holy Spirit. We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. They knew it. And then they turned to Jesus, and then they put their faith in him, and they knew for a fact that they had received him because there was evidence of it. Paul actually helps us out in Romans 8. Um, This is what he writes on this whole concept. He he, he says, you, however, when he writes to the Romans, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life is life because of righteousness. So he's, he's associating, once again, if you are a believer in Christ, you have been given the Holy Spirit. You have been baptized into the Holy Spirit. You've been immersed into the Holy Spirit if you are in Christ. And then he goes on to say, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If this spirit has the power to raise Jesus to life physically, he has the power to raise you to life physically and spiritually. What Paul writes in Romans 8 is essentially a thesis for what happens in Acts 19. If you belong to Jesus and have trusted him, you will have his spirit, he will dwell in you, and if he dwells in you, he will give you life. And there is always evidence of life. You can know for certain within seconds of observing one's physical body if the body is living or if the body is dead. I can look at all of you and there's about 99% of you that I'm sure are alive. There's a 1% that might not be and somebody should probably check the pulse. The same is true spiritually. There will be evidence of a spiritual life if you have the spirit. It might not be supernatural gifts. It might not be a crazy gospel advancement, but it will be something. And if you're sitting here saying, well, how do I know? How do I know? When you consider what the scriptures say about the role of the Holy Spirit, we're given some, some hints, some clues as to his, what evidence of the spiritual life looks like, being immersed into the Holy Spirit. Jesus told the disciples that the Spirit would convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So tell me, 
Does the presence of sin in your life disgust you? Yes, we have been freed from the penalty of sin. We have been freed from the power of sin. The presence of sin will linger on our souls until, uh, until eternity. There, there will never be a day we will be perfect in the flesh, in this time before we die or before Christ returns. And so the, the presence of sin will be in our life. But how do you feel about that? Does it disgust you? Or do you find yourself enjoying it? and actively engaging it, and actually pursuing it with no regard for what God thinks. How about 1 Corinthians 12? It says that only those in the Spirit can truly call Jesus Lord. So tell me, what do you have to say about Jesus? Who is Jesus? Do you believe everything that Jesus has said about himself? Do, do, do you believe that he is truly God in the flesh and that only uh, he can reconcile you to God? that he is the only way, that he is the only truth, that he is the only life? Or is Jesus just a good man among a plethora of other good men and good teachers and just one of the many different paths that all eventually lead to God? How about Galatians? It describes the spirit as a fruit producer in our life. Right? When he indwells us, he begins the work of a harvest on our character. You see Christianity coming to know Christ is more than just walking away from your sin, turning away from your sin, but it's turning away from your sin to God. That is what true repentance looks like. It's just disregarding my old ways of life and pursuing a new way of life, pursuing God-honoring character, and it's the Holy Spirit that does that. And the fruit that he harvests in us, as according to Galatians, is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So tell me, are these things present in your life? As, as you interact with your children and as you interact with your parents and as you interact with your husband or your wife, do these things rise to the top? Are you becoming more like Jesus as you go? Or is your character deficient in these areas? We won't be perfect but we ought to be getting better by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is to be experienced. And if you have not experienced him, perhaps it begs the question that I have not received him because I have not truly put my faith and trust in Jesus. And so I posed the same question this morning that Paul asks these disciples back in verse two. And I don't really care as much uh, what you tell me, what you believe or, or, or what you claim or how involved you are with church or what you've done in the past, but rather have you received the Holy Spirit? And is there evidence of it? Have you put your faith in Christ and in Christ alone, which would result in the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Do you know which side of the fulcrum you are on. If not, please do not leave here today without turning to Jesus for your salvation. Would you pray with me? And Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this gift that you have given us in the Spirit, Lord. I can't imagine what the disciples uh, would, would think when Jesus broke the news to them that there would be a day he would leave them. Lord, they had traveled with him for three years, learning under his teaching, regarding him as Lord and Savior, as the Messiah. And to hear that he was leaving, 
must have been heartbroken. But how glorious, Father. How glorious that you did not leave them and you do not leave us to ourselves, to fend for ourselves, to try and understand you apart from you, that you gave us the Holy Spirit. And so we praise the Spirit. We give him glory for all of his active work, Father, and would he move once again in our, in our midst, in our minds, in our hearts, so that we would become more Christ-like? Would he, would he bear fruit um, in our souls as we seek to honor and glorify you, Father? We praise you for your son, Jesus. We praise Jesus for the sacrifice that he made in order to make this possible, Lord and that by rising again from the grave, he has demonstrated his own authority over death itself and has called us to call on him as the savior of the world. We do that this morning, Father, and it's in your holy name I pray. Amen.